Tonight's Bible reading comes from John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring back, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thanks, widow. Thank Alexander, everybody. Well read. Give that to your dad. Okay. okay. We're going to look at Matthew. We're going to look at John chapter 21, which is following on both from Easter, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, obviously, but it also fits in with our theme for this year in terms of discipleship of how we, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, ought to live. We're going to work our way through this passage and then make some applications to it. And to that end, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Thank you again, Lord, for your word. We acknowledge your resurrection and your presence here with us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that your spirit might help us to understand and to see truths and its application to our lives in this chapter. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and lives, therefore, that will be obedient and transformed to your honour and to your glory and to be more like you. We pray in your name. Amen. So we, if Stuart's going to put that up for me, I think. Call tonight's chapter 21. We're going to go through the whole chapter. To listen, love and follow Jesus. How should we as disciples of the Lord Jesus follow him after the resurrection? <clears throat> Which is pretty much what chapter 21 is about. Because if you look at John chapter 20, the end of chapter 20, it reads like the conclusion to the book. Finished. 
But then this is added on. And some people, in fact, say it has been added on, and not by the author himself, not by John, but I don't think that's true. I think it is John who's adding it. And he's adding it on both to address the question of how come Peter was so significant in the early church? One issue. Uh, another issue is uh, what about this rumour that was floating about that J um, John wouldn't die before Jesus came back? He writes to correct that. But ultimately, I think John's theme is that after the resurrection, how did Jesus relate to his disciples and how does he relate to us and how, therefore, do we relate to him? We are to listen, to love and to follow him. So as we work our way through this passage, John chapter 21, verse 1 says, Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to the disciples. He appeared again. He'll tell us a little bit later on in the chapter, I think verse 14, this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to them. I'll come back to that in a moment. Jesus didn't rise from the dead and spend 24-7 with the disciples for the next 40, next 40 days. <clears throat> he was with them, he was absent. He was with them, he was absent. He was with them, he was absent. Over that space of um, 40 days with some significant not with them periods of time. He was training them and getting them used to how do we relate to him in the midst of his absence or his distance from us? This chapter gives us insights into that. So afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, which is what he told them to do. I'll see, meet you in Galilee. So they went there. And they note this, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who was also called Didymus, which simply means twin. He was a twin to somebody. Nathaniel, whom we know in chapter 1, who was from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and the two other disciples, seven all up. Now note this, they were all together. Prior to the resurrection, they were hidden behind closed doors. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, they were scattered. But now they are reunited and they are together in Galilee, in the area where Jesus did a lot of his public ministry and early ministry and his most um, well-known ministry. And here they are associating together without fear, it would seem, um, which is demonstrating something of the character of these individuals. But also note, through their various names, their different personalities, it's a picture of the early church. Uh, the early church was made up of people, a mixture of spiritual failures of... Uh, Peter, who denied him, of Thomas, who was determined in his unbelief unless he saw and felt and touched the wounds of the Lord Jesus. And then unknowns. We don't know a lot about Nathaniel. The two sons of Zebedee, we do know, James and John. And, but there are two other disciples who are not even named and two other disciples. But the point is they were together. They were not hiding. Peter is with them. Thomas is there with them. And they are together in Galilee, waiting to meet with Jesus. Um, Peter then says to the rest of them, I'm going fishing. Everybody jumps on top of this, and not everybody. Many people jump on top of that and say, this is an act of disobedience. Jesus had called Peter to leave fishing behind and to come follow him and to be a full-time preacher, evangelist, whatever, leader of the early church. And so when Peter says, I'm going fishing, it's an act of disobedience. He's rejecting his call. That's not my view, but it is the view of many people. So I'll keep alluding to it as I go through just in the early parts of this. What I actually think is happening is they're in Galilee. They had just come back from Jerusalem where they had been 
with family and friends. They'd spent a couple of weeks down there, certainly there for the Passover. And Jesus had risen from the dead and said, I'll meet you in Galilee. So now they had returned to Galilee. We don't know about too much details about their family and situation, but we do know Peter had a wife. We don't know if he had children, but we assume he did. And now I could imagine funds are running out and they're in need and they have to do something for food and or for income. And I think that's where this decision is coming from. It's a practical need, not driven by disobedience, but we're waiting to see Jesus and we've got to live. We've got to do something. Um, so interestingly, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the others say, we're going with you. If it was an act of disobedience, then they're joining him in that act of disobedience, which is what tips me towards, I think it's more of a practical situation. Anyway, the reality is they go out fishing and they go fishing all night and once again they catch nothing. That would surely, I think, triggered memories for them of three years beforehand in Luke chapter 5 where they'd been out all night fishing, they didn't catch anything. And the next morning they met Jesus on the beach. There was a large crowd of people and Jesus borrowed the boat and they went out and he said, let down your nets. And they caught this, an abundance of fish to the point where there were two large nets and there, there, there were so many fish, the nets were tearing and Peter had to call for others to come and help. It would have reminded them of that instance where they went fishing all night and caught nothing. Now, if you think it's an act of disobedience, then it's easy to make the jump to, well, obviously they didn't catch anything, there's no blessing because they're being disobedient. And that's where some people go. For me, it's more, no, they're acting in terms of practicalities and doing, well, what are we going to do? We have to do something. But their efforts were futile. Uh, God's would allowed them to work all night for no gain because he had something else in store. Now, perhaps that's more like where you're at, of you're doing what you should be doing, you're engaged in your normal employment or life and you're pursuing your studies or whatever, and yeah, life is a struggle, life is difficult. And where is God and what is he doing? Well, he's doing something, as we'll find out in this passage. And for these guys, it's certainly a reminder, and perhaps to us, they didn't catch anything because remember what Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. There's perhaps you can make that jump to this application here of we need to be relying upon the Lord. While they were doing something practical, did they just go and do their own thing? Did they not consult? Did they just go off on their own? We're not told enough information. Whoops. Um, and so now... Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realise that it was Jesus. It's dawn. It's not full light. It's a distance. We're told later in the passage about 100 metres. <clears throat> but there's something different about Jesus as well. That even when he was close to some of his earlier disciples, they didn't recognise him. It's the same Jesus. It's the same body, but there's a difference about him. Anyway, the disciples didn't realise that it was him. And he calls out to them. He doesn't give any clues. He uses the word friends. It's a, a very general, normal um, form of address. It's the word that a teacher would use in addressing the students in a class. It's, hey, guys. It's like you would address a stranger that way. Jesus is not giving any clues that it's him. And he says to them, do you have any fish? Do you catch anything? Do you have any food? 
almost like he's inviting himself, maybe. And, but they, and this is the lesson, I think this is the point, they honestly say they own their failure, they, they own their inadequacy. No, they answer. Been out all night, we've tried and tried and we have failed. Now, take note of this. At the point when you honestly acknowledge your inadequacies, when you acknowledge your failures, when you acknowledge you can't do it by yourself, that Jesus turns up and will give you directions, will give you an insight in, will give you the next step of the way. That's certainly a lesson I gather from this passage. So Jesus said to them, after they said no, Jesus says to them, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Jesus knows. Jesus knows how we can succeed. Jesus knows how we can achieve what we're trying to set out to achieve. Um, provided we get to that point where we acknowledge um, can't do it in my own strength. He looks for that humility and that honesty in us. Going back a very long time in human history, when I was at university with my lovely darling wife, uh, a friend of mine in, if you've been in the church long enough, you've heard me tell this story a long time ago. I haven't told it for many years. His name was Stephen, Stephen Dawson. Stephen Dawson and I were both involved in athletics and Stephen was a very fast runner, a sprinter and I was always second to Stephen Dawson in high school. I'm getting over it. I became a Christian and he didn't. He went off to university and two or three years later I found out he had become a Christian and he followed me up and we connected up and he was somewhere in Sydney at one of the universities there and Navigators was on the campus and Navigators had this system of evangelising at lunchtime. And you could go up at lunchtime, you would go out amongst the, uh, the quadrangle where students were having their lunch and you'd just go up to a group of people and you would simply ask them a series of questions. And it didn't matter what they answered, you had the follow-up question and you had the follow-up presentation. It was a foolproof, no-fail form of evangelism. And he taught it to me. And I thought, this is fantastic. I returned to my campus, which was in Wagga, Rivkol, and uh, I thought, I'm going to do this. And I went out. And on the quadrangle at Riverona College, at whatever lunchtime it was when I went and did it, guess how many students were out on the grass areas eating their lunch? None. And I went, huh. I have a foolproof method, a formula for evangelism and there's no one there. What's going on? So I went back to my room and on the way back to my room, the Lord met with me and spoke to me and said to me, because I'm going, what's going on? I don't get it. And the Lord said to me, Colossians 4.2. He didn't say that. He said what it says. He said, devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. And I thought about that, and then it dawned on me, it's not up to us. We can't do it. There's no such thing as a foolproof method of evangelism. There's no way, there's no formula, there's no way you can set up a question. If you ask this question and I answer that, then you can follow that up and it leads to that. And if you follow that up, it leads to this conclusion and you have to choose. Well, there are those methods, but they're of a human invention. That's not how God works. 
God looks for the people who are going to acknowledge, Lord, I'm inadequate, I can't do it, I've tried, I failed, and then here I am. And then the Lord will give you instructions, do it this way, do this. I mean, they were close to success, these fishermen, they were one boat length width away from success. They'd worked all night and hadn't caught anything. He said, let the net down on the right-hand side, and they did so, and they caught a net full of fish. Amazing. Jesus knows how we can succeed. When we follow his instructions, when we follow his directions, then we get the results. Then we will be blessed. Then we will experience his goodness in our life. But our obedience to his instructions has to be both general as well as personal. General, it's in the scriptures. That's for everybody. But there's also personal obedience where God has given us specific nudges and prompts of things that he wants us personally to be doing that may not be true for anybody else. So question for tonight, is your obedience, you know, up to date? That's when you do what he wants you to do and how he wants you to do it, that the blessing will come. Notice the fish didn't jump into the boat either. They still had to let their nets down. They were still involved. They were still cooperating with his directions. And that's the plan. That's how God works. He works with us, through us, to achieve his purposes in the world. He doesn't need us, uh, but he chooses to include us in this wonderful opportunity of being able to serve him. And notice too, with the blessing, there was not the removal of effort or hard work or labour. In fact, their labour increased. They now had they were unable to drag the net in. There were so many fish. And later on in the passage, it'll tell us 153. It, it led to more effort, more energy, more labor, but with his blessing and undoubtedly greater joy because this was, I think, uh, the provision of their need. They would be able to not only eat this fish, but they would be able to sell it and to earn an income from it. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author, said to Peter, it's the Lord, it's Jesus. He's the one who said that. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say that, he'd taken off his outer garment, he was dressed in his loincloth because he was trying to fish and work hard. And as soon as he heard it was the Lord, he grabbed his outer garment, he wrapped that around himself and the belt around it and he jived in, dived in and he swam towards Jesus. They're 100 metres from the shore. When you contrast that with Luke 5, this other instance where they were out all night and failed to catch anything, in that instance, Luke, uh, Peter says in Luke 5, Lord, go away from me for I am a sinful man. In this passage, Peter hears it's Jesus, he grabs his garments, he jumps in and he, die, he swims. He leaves them to look after the fish and the catch and everything else. He abandons them and he jumps in, doesn't walk on the water, he has to swim. The other the disciples follow, the scripture says, towing the net they couldn't pull it in so they're dragging it now to the shore heavy load um, and it says they're about 100 meters from the shore when they landed here comes the teaching opportunity when they landed there were some burning coals already there and there was some fish and some bread jesus already had enough supply he was going to have breakfast with them <clears throat> the burning coals in john's gospel uh, it's memory. You know how often a smell of things and the sight of things can trigger memories? So on this instance, burning coals is what have triggered for Peter. On the night when Jesus was betrayed and they were in Caiaphas's garden, there was a burning coals and he was cold and he came near to it to warm himself. 
and the light of the fire, then the servant says to him, I recognize you, you're one of them. No, I'm not. That's the denial. The burning coals triggered the memory or would have triggered the memory of this is the very night and occasion when Peter failed when he denied the Lord Jesus. Interesting. Here we have burning coals again. And Jesus is going to have a conversation with Peter. Jesus has already met with Peter on the very first Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. A one-on conversation where I'm sure forgiveness was extended and their fellowship was restored. But this passage is going to be about the restoration to ministry. Not just to fellowship with the Lord Jesus and relationship with him, but to ministry and in serving him. Um, Then Jesus said to them, bring some of the fifth fish that you have just caught. So Peter, who's with Jesus, ringing wet, goes back to the boat. Good grief. Simon Peter climbs back into the boat, which they've now dragged to the shore. It was full of large fish, 153, which I've highlighted for you because I want to talk for half an hour about that. And, but even with so many fish, the net was not torn. <clears throat> Why does John tell us there are 153 fish? Answer? Oh, you know, come on. Who goes fishing? When you go fishing and you catch fish, what do you do? Amen. That's why there's 153. Because they counted them. It's not because there are 153 different nations in the world. No. It's not because there are 153 different sorts of fish in the ocean. No. It's not because it's the sum of the numbers from 1 to 17. No. All of those answers and many other stupid responses have been given. There are 153 fish because these guys are fishermen and they counted them. How many boat blokes were in the boat? Seven. Why did they go fishing? Practical reason, I think, is because they went to get fish for food and to sell. There are seven of them. You divide 153 into seven, how many each do they get? 21. That leaves six left over. And Jesus says to them, um, go and grab some of the fish that you've caught. How many does he grab? Six. Really? Well, I don't know. But it makes sense, works out mathematically. And then if you get nothing else tonight, remember this. Jesus says to them, I should go back to a point. Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. Whenever Jesus gives you an invitation to have breakfast with him, don't miss the opportunity. Come and have breakfast. Let's sit down and dine together and eat together and share together. Never miss that opportunity. It's very similar to what he said to the church in Laodicea, isn't it? Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and if anyone hear my voice, open the door. I will come in, dine with them, they with me. It's a standing invitation Jesus gives to his disciples, to the church in Laodicea, to the disciples here. He says very specifically, let's Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was him. Something different about him? It's it's him. We know it's him. Back on the 153, I think it's Warren Weasby, doesn't matter. One of the commentators uh, draws this uh, perhaps helpful insight. 
He says in Luke chapter 5, when they went fishing all night and failed and then they obeyed Jesus and they got the blessing of the fish coming in, we don't know how many fish they caught. But in John chapter 21, when they went, same thing, failed all night, obeyed Jesus' instructions, they caught fish in abundant supply, we know how many they caught, 153. Weasby draws this conclusion. He says, while we minister for the Lord Jesus in this world, we don't know how many fish will come out of our ministry. We don't know. But when we meet and see Jesus, then we will know exactly how many fish have come through our efforts. Interesting, isn't it? You will know how effective you've been in serving him. It'll, the number will be revealed. Jesus says, come and have breakfast. And that's the reality. That's the secret of ministry. Ministry is always out of the overflow of your heart. That ministry flows out of your relationship with Jesus, not based on your own efforts and your own skills and your own competencies. It's none of that. It's you relying upon the Lord who gave you those things and saying, Lord, here I am, use me. And as you're close to him, so he uses you in ministry to make a difference in people's lives. A pastor friend of mine used to once say, his motto, his philosophy of ministry was, no Bible, no brekkie which he meant, first thing I do when I get up in the morning, after I've gotten ready and everything else, he said, I read my Bible, that's first. Then I have breakfast. No Bible, no brekkie. That was his way of disciplining himself to make sure he tuned into what Jesus wanted to say to him for that day. Well, if that's helpful, you can do that. For some of you, it's not first thing in the morning, it's going to be later at night or it's going to be middle of the day or it's going to be on the bus or the train or the car or whatever it is going to work or university. That's when you'll be listening to the Lord. However it is for you, find a time when you are listening and tuned in, having breakfast, a time with the Lord Jesus. And then please note this. Jesus is wanting to meet with the disciples and he's particularly wanting to have a conversation with Peter. And Peter is wringing wet and it says, um, Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, did the same with the fish. He served them. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus served them. The resurrected Lord is ministering to them in order that they can go out and minister for him. He still does the same thing today. How do we relate to Jesus post-resurrection? He ministers to us. He refreshes and nurtures and nourishes us he equips us that we may go and serve him not alone but in reliance upon his directions and his instructions and the thing i like about this is jesus is giving peter time to dry off get warm have something to eat have a time of fellowship with the other guys before he's going to raise some pretty significant issues verses 15 to 17 which is coming oh you're on that you shouldn't be there. Naughty. Jesus took time out for him to get ready. Sometimes, if you're spiritually flat, if you're spiritually struggling, maybe what you need to do is either have a good night's sleep or a good feed. Don't neglect the body in caring for the soul they're connected one impacts the other if you're overtired you will be spiritually affected 
it is certainly true, certainly I've had this and I'm sure you have, it's certainly true that when you are involved in spiritual encounters, spiritual ministry, when you're getting the opportunity to teach and or minister God's word and sharing with people who are seeking Jesus, that is spiritually, mentally, emotionally stimulating. It feeds you. But you can't maintain that because you do need time out. We are physical creatures. We need rest. We need food. We need water. You've got to look after yourself. In 1 Kings 19, the prophet Elijah had this, in chapter 18, had this magnificent spiritual experiences, which you can read about. And he's drained. And the queen is now angry with him and she threatens to kill him and he becomes suicidal. He runs away. Well, not surprisingly, after a significant spiritual experience, he is then emotionally drained and physically depleted and he runs. And God sends an angel to meet with him. And guess what the angel says? Rise, Elijah, eat and drink. And he eats and he drinks and he goes back to sleep again. And after he has rested for a while, then when he wakes up again, then he goes down and meets God in a cave. This bit is what I want you to take note of. Sometimes the best thing you can do for yourself spiritually is have a good night's sleep and make sure you are eating enough and that you are drinking enough water. You need to look after yourself physically in order to be spiritually effective. After Jesus has made sure that Peter is dry and refreshed and ready, then he challenges him which is in one of my favorite passages in God's word. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and I, the passage doesn't say this, but if you jump down to verse 20, it says they turned around and saw John following them, which seems to imply that Jesus says to Peter, how about you and I go for a walk? So they're walking together. This is not happening in the group. This is Jesus and Peter alone, walking. That's how I read it and understand it. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Now, before we go on, he's going to say this three times. That first time, that first question, do you love me more than, more than what? What are the these? Do you love me? more than these did peter as he was walking uh, jesus as he was walking with peter did he point to the boat and the nets and the fish do you love me more than these because that represented peter's old life that's his career that's his trade that could be his security do you love me more than that you're willing to trust me or maybe when Jesus said, do you love me more than these? He was referring to people. Do you love me more than you love these disciples, these friends of yours? Because in the disciples, there was his brother, Andrew. There was his business part partners, James and John. There were close friends that he'd been with for over three years. Do you love me more than you love your family, your close friends and your business associates? Do you love me more than you love them? Maybe Jesus meant that. Most likely Jesus meant, uh, Peter, in the upper room and on other occasions, you bragged and boasted that you loved me more than they did, that they might deny me and desert me, but you never would. 
Well, you did. You failed. You denied me. Hey, Peter, do you love me more than they love me? Would you still say that? To now Peter, who has learned his lesson, is now more humbled and says, Lord, you know. You know that I love you. Not comparing myself to others, not putting them down. You know that I love you. So Jesus then says to him, note, if you love me, then do this with my sheep. In this case, it's feed my lambs. Jesus will go on to say, do you love me? Then tend or shepherd or look after my sheep, take care of my sheep. Do you love me a third time? And feed my sheep. Each time Jesus questions him, three times, do you love me? Three times he says in the affirmative yes. And then three times Jesus says, if you love me, you have to love mine. You have to love my sheep. You have to look after them. You have to care for them. You have to feed them. You have to nurture them. They're sheep. There's an inseparable link between loving and knowing and following Jesus and his people. They're connected. You might know of some people who say, Jesus, yes, love and I'll follow and serve him. Church, no. His people, no. Well, I don't think the New Testament allows us to go there, but I know people who have gone there. I know people who are once part of this church fellowship and family. And one of them I spoke to and they said to me that, I think the institutional church has got it wrong. So I'm following Jesus. And I'm not coming back to church. I said, well, you need to go to another church or you need to connect in with other disciples. You need fellowship. And you can't obey the New Testament if you're not in fellowship and connection with other Christians. It's impossible. Because the King, the Lord, says, love one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Serve one another. You can't do that. If you're not in relationship with others, none of us are perfect. We all have warts and problems and weaknesses and idiosyncrasies and everything else. But that's the commitment Jesus is challenging Peter to and us, I think. You love me? Uh, then love my people. Love one another. Care for one another. And you'll fumble and you'll stumble and you'll get it wrong and... All of those sorts of things will happen, but let's not give up. Let's pick up, step up, and move forward together. Let's humble ourselves together, be broken together. Seems to me that's what Jesus wants from his church. Having dealt with that, do you love Jesus? Well, what if you're here tonight, and what if you're in a situation where you go, well... I'm actually struggling spiritually. I don't know if I do love him and I'd like to renew my love for him. How do you renew your love for God? Uh, well, I've been married for 322 years, isn't it? Long time. And occasionally, I don't feel close to my wife. It's because she sins, she's irritating, she does things wrong. You have to understand that. She's married to somebody who was a pastor who's pretty good, who's... <laughs> yeah. 
they're frustrating, annoying, and highly whatever. When we fail out of sorts together, how do I renew my love and affection for my wife? Chocolates and flowers. Thanks, was it? So if you're in love for Jesus, you need chocolates and flowers, and <laughs> I'm sure that's helpful. Well, the flowers represent saying, doesn't it? Sorry. It's an indication of, I, I want to renew this relationship. So you need to, you want to renew your love for God, your closeness to God, then three things. Number one, spend time getting to know him. Number two, talk to him. Pray. Honestly, talk to him. And then number three, expose yourself to not just getting to know him through reading the Bible, but get to know him thirdly through talking to people who know him. So read your Bible, pray, and talk to people who are close to him. That will renew your love and affection for him. Because if you know him, you will love him. If you know him. Jesus says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He goes on to say, then very challengingly, very truly, which is a very serious way to introduce things. It's truly, truly. Amen. Amen. This is in true, Peter. I tell you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted. But when you were old, so he's now saying, you know, decades from now, Peter, as you age, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And what he means is, what he means is you will stretch out your hands Someone else will dress you, crucifixion, and they will take you to a place you don't want to go. This is how you will die. Jesus is telling him, how would you like to live with that over your head, knowing Jesus says you're going to die in time when you get older, 30 years from now, by crucifixion. Well, Peter lived with that, and Jesus said this to him, it says, verse 19, to indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. That's the point. We need to glorify God in our dying. How do we glorify God in our dying? By what Jesus says here, follow me. We glorify him then by following him now, by living our life in service to him. And that will lead to a death which brings honour and glory to him. And then Peter, when he heard that, startling news because he was to be a significant leader in the early church Peter turned and saw the disciple John me love was following them in verse 21 uh, Peter says um, what about him well verse 22 Jesus said if I want him to remain alive until I return what is that to you you follow me note this when we follow Jesus we are to follow him regardless of our future as, Peter, as Jesus has outlined it for Peter. Regardless of our future, whatever the future may bring, follow Jesus. But we're also to follow Jesus regardless of others. Of, regardless of whether others follow him or not, I will follow him. Regardless of what God does with others, you know, he might bless them abundantly and he might not bless you abundantly, doesn't matter. I will follow Jesus. That's the point. And to follow him means that you're going to yield your all to him, that you'll seek his will and that you will submit to it ahead of time. To follow him. Lord, here is my life. 
I'm following you. Your will be done in my life. Well, we could go on and expand that, but time's going. Um, because Jesus had said this to Peter, interestingly, Jesus got, was misunderstood. Uh, because of this, the rumour started to spread amongst the believers that this disciple, John, wouldn't die. But Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. He said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Well, <clears throat> without going on to too many details, uh, John gives this correction to this misunderstanding of what Jesus had said. And you could imagine that all the disciples, apostles, have died off and John is the remaining one. And this rumour is gaining momentum that when before he dies, before John dies, Jesus is coming back. And that led to a very early expectation in the early church. And John had to write this to correct it, saying he didn't say that. He didn't say I wouldn't die. He says, what if I didn't die? It's a what if clause. And then, of course, when John does die, then the people wouldn't be devastated by this misunderstanding of what Jesus said. Um, this is the disciple, John, who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. His testimony is reliable. That's one. Verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If we wrote them all down, the world wouldn't be able to contain the books. The Bible is both reliable. His testimony is true. It's accurate. It's faithful. can be relied upon. It's also selective. It doesn't tell us everything. We want to know more, but God has given us enough. His word is sufficient for us to not only come to know him personally, salvation, but also to grow in holiness, to become more and more like him. His word is reliable, selective, and sufficient. So how do we, as followers of the Lord Jesus, follow him now that he has risen and gone? He's coming back. But in the meantime, what do we do? Well, we need to be listening to him, enjoying breakfast with Jesus, listening to his instructions in our life, in our careers, in our occupations, in our home life, in our leisure lives. Are we listening to him? If we try to do it on our own, we won't succeed. But if we listen, he'll say, do it this way, do this, and you'll experience his blessing and success. Are we loving him and his people? Is there something we need to put right there? Are we trusting him with our future and following him regardless of what other people are doing? And finally, are we relying on his word, which is reliable and sufficient for us? So between the resurrection and the return of the Lord Jesus, we need to listen, to love and to follow him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again for your word, for this chapter, for the lessons that are in it. And even tonight, Lord, we haven't mined all of them. But there's enough there for us to be nurtured spiritually from, to be challenged by. Could you continue to minister your word to us? Help us to think through and to respond to the challenges that you have for us. Whether it's, Lord, us having breakfast with you on a regular basis, listening to your directions in our life. Whether it's loving you and with that, loving your people, sharing and caring and praying for one another. Or maybe, Lord, it's 
trusting you with our future, regardless of what others are doing. Or perhaps, Lord, it's simply connecting with you and relying completely on your word. Achieve your will and purposes in our life for your kingdom's sake and glory. We pray in your name. Amen.